You're listening to Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, the gospel roots of rock and soul. I'm Cece Winans. Midway through the 20th century, America and its allies united to triumph over fascism. The most important post-war alliance for music lovers, though, brought together gospel, R&B, blues, and country. You could hear it all over AM radio in Memphis, Tennessee. And man, we've been playing the last, uh, At WHBQ, DJ Dewey Phillips hosted the popular show Red Hot and Blue. It is Strange Things Happening Every Day by Sister Rosetta Thorne. Over at rival station WDIA, young Riley King helped pioneer the first all-race music format in the country. Race meant black, and this DJ would soon earn the nickname BB, short for Blues Boy King. Sunday nights, WHBQ delivered Reverend W. Herbert Brewster's Count Meeting of the Air from East Trigg Baptist Church. And I too can say, I am so glad I've got good religion. Deanie Parker from the legendary Memphis label Stax Records tuned in regularly. I do remember listening to Reverend Brewster's sermons that were recorded one Sunday in advance and replayed the next Sunday. He was a prolific poet. I liked his messages. And, you know, I liked the songs. Another faithful listener was Memphis native and future WDIA personality, Mark Stansberry. I believe I was, what, 11 or 12 years old at Leith School. And my teacher was uh, Miss Juanita Brewster at the time, and that's Dr. W. Herbert Brewster's daughter. And against my mother's wishes, I rode my bicycle up busy Union Avenue, which is right up the street here. And Nat D. Williams was the first African-American DJ. And Nat invited me in and interviewed me. And he made a great impression on me. And at the time, you know, I said, that I think I want to be like Nat D. The musical mix on the radio challenged the racial status quo in deeply segregated Memphis. What you saw in radio was not true integration. Writer and critic Ann Powers has studied the post-war pop music scene. You know, it wasn't like uh, black and white DJs were necessarily sharing the mic or even that black artists would be played right next to white artists all the time. People from all over poured into Memphis for post-war job opportunities. That influx included musicians who started borrowing ideas from each other. Take the Blackwood Brothers, a white gospel quartet from Choctaw County, Mississippi. When they moved to Memphis in 1950, they would have heard groups like the Soulsters on WDIA. I can tell the world about this. I can tell the nation that I'm blessed. Tell them what my Jesus has done. Tell them that the Comforter has come. And he brought joy, great joy unto my soul. Music historian Ann Powers told us. It isn't that complicated to see how 
white Southern gospel quartets like the Blackwood Brothers and the Statesmen did pretty much borrow directly from black gospel. But some elements, white groups like the Blackwood Brothers just couldn't copy. Longtime Stax Record publicist, Deanie Parker. I want to make another statement about gospel music. And that is that it comes out of the souls of black people. I'm not suggesting to you that there isn't gospel in those arcs. You understand what I'm saying? In Appalachia, there is gospel. But the gospel that I grew up on, that I cut my teeth on, that moves me, is the gospel about which I am talking. Okay, and it's different. It's different. Many white parents didn't want their children listening to any black music, not even gospel songs. If all those kids had obeyed, we wouldn't have rock and roll. But for white audiences who did avoid black music, groups like the Blackwood Brothers brought gospel sounds to them anyway. So, in his way, did Sam Phillips. Sam grew up in Florence, Alabama. At a local radio station, he met Becky Burns, and they got married. In 1945, they headed north to Tennessee. So he always knew he wanted to move to Memphis. He had, it was a short time in Nashville, but moved to Memphis and recorded big bands at the Peabody. And the whole time he's dreaming of starting his own little studio. Matt Ross Spang runs the Sam Phillips Recording Service in Memphis. That company's namesake founded it as Sun Records in 1950. Primarily just recording black artists. Sam was white. The musicians he recorded deferred to him and observed local customs. And he said they would come in and they would play the music that they thought he wanted to hear. You know, what they would maybe be paid to play at a show. And he said, I want you to play what you play at home. And he said it took a long time for them to open up to do that. And a lot of that would be gospel, but a lot of it would be just gut bucket blue, you know, because Hal and Wolf, these guys had radio shows, so they were thinking they wanted to hear, you know, I'll Fly Away. When Sam set up his studio, he hoped that if the world could hear black musicians make this music that he loved, they'd fall in love with it too. And that could break down the color line. Matt Ross Spang told us... He had, you know, Howlin' Wolf. He had uh, Ike Turner, Junior Parker, B.B. King, Joe Hill Lewis. They all came to him. And uh, Ike Turner was kind of a talent scout. So once he recorded ta- Ike Turner, he would tell like B.B. King, you got to go, there's this crazy white man that'll record you and, and sell you and help you get a record deal and, and stuff. And he, and he treated them fairly. He didn't rip them off like most people did. Sam went out of his way to scout talent and put it on vinyl. 
Warden James E. Edwards of the Nashville State Penitentiary led a group of five singers perform around Nashville to promote the work he was doing to rehabilitate prisoners. That group, the Prisoners, reached Sam's ears. He liked what he heard and arranged to have the Prisoners transported under armed guard from Nashville to his Memphis studio. Group leader Johnny Bragg wrote this single. Just walking in the rain Getting soaking wet Torture in my heart By trying to forget Just Walking in the Rain was Sun Records' very first hit. A couple of months later, Sam brought the prisoners back to his studio. A local newspaper sent a staffer to Sun Records for photos and an article about the prisoner's success. And it also mentioned that Sam records anything, anywhere, anytime. Again, Matt Ross Spang. You could come in and do a novelty recording. You could pay $3 and cut direct to disc. To an 18-year-old who had moved with his parents from Tubelo, Mississippi to Memphis, that sounded like a pretty good deal. And I think Elvis read this and thought, well, if prisoners can record there and these people, I can go in there and pay $3 and make a record. So he came in, uh, I think, four or five days after that. One thing you have to remember about Elvis is that he was poor. He was very poor. Music writer Ann Powers. His family was, uh, you know, essentially disenfranchised and had to leave Mississippi in order to start anew, but it wasn't easy at all. His father, Vernon, was often out of work and occasionally in trouble with the law. His mother, Gladys, found work at a cafeteria and later as a nurse's assistant. Elvis was just trying to finish high school. He loved the gospel, blues, and country he heard on Memphis radio. The music of W. Herbert Brewster's East Trigg Baptist Church along with the sounds of the statesmen and the Blackwood brothers. The teenager brought all that to Sam Phillips' studio. Evening shadows make me blue When each weary day goes through How I long to be with you At the end of the session... Sam handed Elvis a single copy of the recording. He gave it to his mother. Nobody else heard of the kid until a year later, when Sam called him into the studio and he recorded his take on a popular blues by author Big Boy Crudup. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, my mama. Anyway, do. 
done told me, Papa done told me too. Son, that guy you fooling wish he ain't no good to you, but that's all right. Turns out there was a massive audience for the music Elvis loved, the music Sam had set up his studio to record. But not for the black artists who inspired Elvis. White audiences only started buying after artists like Elvis came to Sun Records, followed by Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, and Roy Orbison. Was it okay for Elvis, a white musician, to get famous off of the black musicians who did not share in that fame? Was Elvis an appropriator or a thief or someone who championed and gave proper credit to his musical influences? We're still working through these questions. Once the music is in the air, there simply is no stopping it. There's no keeping it back. There's no saying, oh, this is limited to this person or this population. Peter Goralnik wrote a critically acclaimed Elvis Presley biography, Night Train to Memphis. Goralnik told us about the singer's misgivings over what we call these days cultural appropriation. Well, you know, I should just I should say it's totally understandable that Elvis should be made the scapegoat. There is no question that one of the essential components of his music was uh, the African-American tradition, but so was the Appalachian tradition, so was the gospel tradition. Is that black? Is that white? You can totally understand if you're looking for a way to describe some of the basic inequities that exist within our society. Symbolically, it makes total sense to see Elvis as embodying that. But with respect to the particular person or the particular expression of his art, I just don't think it's true. Deborah Smith Pollard teaches English literature at the University of Michigan-Dearborn and hosts gospel radio programs in Detroit. If one is observant, going into an environment that is initially unfamiliar, but takes a lot of notes, and is respectful of that culture. I can see how Elvis and many others would incorporate those moves. Some people say, yeah, not just the sounds, the moves um, that he saw in East Trigg. Um, I'm not mad at Elvis, even though I'm sure there are other people who are. Elvis just happens to be, what, the king. So, yeah, he just gets a lot more spotlight, I should say, when it comes to who would you say may have borrowed heavily from the black church? Yeah, Elvis would be at the top of the list. Train a Gospel was always at the center of Elvis' own musical tastes, and it clearly shaped his rock and roll performances. There were, of course, reasons Elvis became the first breakout rock and roll star, the face of this new hybrid music. Chuck D, founding member of the legendary rap group Public Enemy, from the 2018 documentary film The King. He was the right person to sell and market to a white country. For three decades, these lines from public enemies fight the power, have shaped the discussion around Elvis and appropriation. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant to me as he straight out racist. The sucker was simple and plain. Motherfucking man, John Wayne. Cause I'm black and I'm proud. Already, already I'm hyped for some amp. Most of my heroes don't appear. My conversation never was just this white dude stole black music. I think Sam Phillips was a business guy. 
you tried to sell those records with black folks, could not get them across. Found a guy, you know, that was able to sell a black sound with a white face. He knew what to sell to America. I think culture is culture. Culture is to be shared. You know, you see a black person playing classical piano. You can't say, you know, because he doesn't have, you know, German roots, you know, that he can't play that classical piano good as anybody else. If a person's able to do the twisted, stanky leg and it happens to be Justin Timberlake, I think it's cool. Fight the power. We got to fight the powers that be. Even as Elvis rose to stardom on rock and roll, he never turned his back on gospel music. At the height of his fame, he recorded standards like Thomas A. Dorsey's Precious Lord. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand, I am Listening to Saturday night and Sunday morning, the gospel roots of rock and soul. I'm Cece Winans. As gospel was influencing other music, it was also finding mainstream success. Rock and rollers in Memphis were making like they had gotten the Holy Spirit. At the same time, Mahalia Jackson was busy in Chicago establishing herself as the queen of gospel. Mahalia Jackson's story is sort of the quintessential Great Migration story. Bob Marovich is editor-in-chief of the Journal of Gospel Music. He told us how Mahalia moved to Chicago in 1927 when she was just 16 years old. She was born in New Orleans, and her mother died when she was very young, so she was raised by her Aunt Duke. That was her nickname. She lived with Aunt Duke. And Aunt Duke was a no-nonsense disciplinarian. And so Mahalia, being young, got across hairs with Aunt Duke a number of times. Somebody in her, her family had moved north to Chicago, said, hey, it's better than what you're experiencing in, in New Orleans. Why don't you come live here? Mahalia told radio host Studs Turkle she had attended Mount Moriah Baptist Church. Well, in the church, in a little church down in Louisiana, we used to sing gospel songs there, and that's how I started to sing in gospel songs, uh, spirituals, and folk songs. When she got to Chicago, her relatives took her to Greater Salem Baptist Church, where Bob Merovich says the music and worship were very different. Mahalia goes in there, and it's these very formal hymns and anthems, and there's no kind of congregational singing going on, but Mahalia gives her testimony and she starts singing, Hand Me Down My Silver Trumpet Gabriel, which I always said it was just like, um, was like having ribs at a tea party, just did not mix with the high-fashioned uh, Greater Salem Baptist Church congregation. Despite that, the pastor asked Mahalia to join the choir. A couple of years later, Mahalia met Thomas Dorsey, the father of gospel music. He spoke with Studs Turkle about working with her. I knew Mahalia back in the 
early 30s or the late 20s, and I was Mahila's pianist and her promoter for seven years. And the first time Mahila made an appearance in New York, I took her to New York. And she's a great soul and a great singer. And I told Mahalia back in those days, I said, I'm not able to do the things for you that I would like to do or the things that uh, you deserve. But you have a voice that no other singer has. And someday, someone will discover you and you will be a great singer. And she is. What Thomas did do for Mahalia was give her his songs to sing. Songs like Peace in the Valley and Precious Lord, which she recorded in 1956. Precious Lord, take my hand, That same year, Mahalia attended the National Baptist Convention, where she met Reverend Ralph Abernathy and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. The ministers asked Mahalia to join them in Montgomery, Alabama. The Negro citizen bus boycott there had continued for more than a year. In June of 1956, a federal court ruled that bus segregation in Alabama violated the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The Supreme Court agreed in November. By December, little had changed on the ground. The boycott leaders invited Mahalia to lift the spirits of discouraged bus boycotters. This is a recording of a song she sang to rally them. By this time, Mahalia was a major star who sold millions of records and filled concert venues. A Sam Cooke-style career into secular music could have been hers for the taking. She told Studs Terkel she liked all kinds of music. I just learned to sing by listening to other people uh, on records, such person as the famous Bessie Smith and... Ma Rainey and Otter Cox, and that was when I was in the South. And after I came north, I had a chance to hear Paul Robeson and Marion, and and I learned Marion Marion Anderson. Yes, that's um. Now I want to get this. Your original inspiration, musically, that is, came from the great blues singers. From the blues that's singers, it. yes. The difference, Mahalia said, came down to this. I just feel good all over when I sing gospel songs. Some church people criticized her for taking gospel music out of the sanctuary and finding success on popular music charts and at the forefront of political movements. The civil rights movement called to other artists steeped in gospel traditions. 
The last living sister in the Staple Singers, Mavis, remembers her family's first meeting with Dr. King in Montgomery, Alabama, after he preached the 11 o'clock service at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He said, we're so happy to have Pop Staples and his daughters here this morning. And um, after the service, Dr. King would stand at the, the door to shake the worshipers' hands as they filed out. My father, he walked past, he took Dr. King's hand, and he went on. After the Sunday sermon, Mavis told us Roebuck Pop Staples got on board with King's message and brought his family with him. And that's when we started writing freedom songs. We joined Dr. King. He was just starting the, um, the movement. He was just getting started. And we, the Freedom Highway was the first freedom song we wrote. We would see things in the news. We'd see the Little Rock Nine, nine black children trying to integrate a central high school in Little Rock. Decades later, she remains grateful for her family's activism. You know this old world's in a bad condition. Pops, he wrote this song, Why Am I Treated So Bad? And Dr. King, <laughs> anytime we were going to the meetings, see, we would sing before he would speak. And he would tell, he would tell Pops, he said, Stape, you're going to sing my song tonight, right? Pops said, oh yeah, doctor, we want to sing your song. Because the Staple Singers, Mahalia Jackson, and other gospel artists were so active in the fight for civil rights, that's where many people heard gospel music. The line blurred between the spiritual and the political. Mahalia explained this for the audience of Studs Terkel, the white host of a secular radio program who also promoted her concerts. My God, that's the thing that gives us hopes and faith to go on. It's, it's, a, it's something like a, a doctor giving you one of those vitamin tablets that mm. revives you. As Dr. Martin Luther King said, walk together, children, don't you get weary. There's a great camp meeting in the promised land. And this promised land is right here in America. I was born here and ain't going here. Expect to die right here too. If they kill me for freedom, then I'll be, be buried on the land of free, as it is said, right in America. But we're gonna walk together right here. Sing together, shout together, and also fight together. In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. asked Mahalia to perform at the March on Washington. Late on that August afternoon, shortly before Dr. King followed a long program of speakers, Mahalia performed two songs, How I Got Over, and I've Been Buked and I've Been Stormed. Martin Luther King stood up to deliver his prepared remarks. On paper, the speech did not contain the words, I have a dream. King's advisor, Clarence B. Jones, recalled in a 2011 interview with NPR's Fresh Air. He had used that phrase, I have a dream, in other speeches, and specifically he had used it in a speech he had given in June in Detroit, I think at a place called Cobalt Hall. That's Cobalt Hall, Detroit's longtime convention center. Jones had helped write sections of King's March on Washington address. 
What happened is that as he is reading from the, uh, the paragraphs which he had written incorporating some of the language and material which I and others has contributed, Mahalia Jackson, who was his favorite gospel singer, who had previously performed, she turns to him and she shouts to him, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. And he acknowledges her and momentarily pauses. And I lean to somebody standing next to me. I said, these people don't know it, but they're about ready to go to church. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to. Memphis native and WDIA radio host Mark Stansberry recalls another day, not quite five years later. I was at Lane College at the time. Uh, I had graduated two years and I was working as director of public relations. And uh, I was uh, in the faculty dining room and I remember, I shall never forget, a student came in and said, Dr. King has been shot. And I said, what? I said, Dr. King has been shot. I believe he's dead. I want you to hear my cry. Gospel music communicates good news. It offers hope in times that seem downright hopeless. During a time of profound national grief, at Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral, Mahalia gave voice to precious Lord. Almost three years after King, Mahalia died of heart failure. At her funeral, to honor what she'd given the movement and the music, Aretha Franklin took up the song. Next time, 
you can make the argument that Aretha Franklin at her peak in the 1960s did more to mainstream the traditions of black gospel music than any artists who had come before then. This hour of Saturday night and Sunday morning, The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul was written and produced by Whitney Jones. For more stories, visit our website at xpngospelroots.org. The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul has been supported by the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage. The executive producers are Roger LeMay and Bruce Warren. Senior producer, Alex Lewis. Assistant producer, Whitney Jones. Editor, Cheryl Duvall. Mixing by Jeff Town. Our production assistant is Rachel Ishikawa. Archival audio courtesy of NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, the Studs Turco Radio Archive, the Library of Congress, and Seattle Pacific University. Special thanks to Ann Powers, Robert Merovich, Jerry Zoltan, and Donald Dubson. I'm Cece Winans. Thanks for listening. The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul is presented in collaboration with NPR Music and is produced in Philadelphia by WXPN at the University of Pennsylvania.